My name is uh, David Evanger, and uh, let me just add my welcome to Chris and Katie's. This is pretty cool uh, to have everyone here uh, with us tonight. Um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm going to try not to cry, so that's why i got to warm up a little bit, because uh, there's a, a lot I could say, but I'm going to say a lot anyhow, so I'll, I'll just skip to it. But there, there's a lot that's gone into to this night, uh, into this place, um, and all I can say is that God is good, and He's faithful, and uh, He continues to be faithful regardless of the situation. And um, tonight is just kind of a celebration of His faithfulness, and uh, it's so glad to have everyone here. Uh, I loved, uh, did you feel just kind of the conversation just, I don't know, it was almost like steaming out of this building? Did you feel that? That's exactly what we want. That's exactly what we want to be about as a community. That's why we don't do 30 seconds of meet and greet. We do four minutes because it's kind of awkward if you just say hello and then, and then just kind of hang out by yourself. So that's what our hope is that you come to this place and conversation just steams out of this building uh, because I actually believe that's praise to God when we come together and uh, we have uh, connection, relationship uh, in his name. So, so that being said, that was pretty awesome to me. Uh, we'll do that every week where we'll spend uh, a few minutes just talking with one another uh, the hope is that this place is not a place where you can be anonymous, but that you can be known. And so um, I was so glad, you know, uh, this is by far the biggest crowd that we've ever had. Uh, we've been doing pre-launch kind of gatherings, uh, which are very intimate and informal. Uh, and so it's just so cool that even with a lot of people like this, that can still happen. So that being said, uh, welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, the official launch of Sedaris Church, and um, you can, I'm not going to talk a lot about what we're about as a community, because I, I just want to do it, and the hope is that uh, maybe you'd be a part of this, and you'll figure out some of that as you go. There is, on the welcome table in the back, a little bit of a vision prospectus about who we are, and what we are, and, and what Sedaris even means. I won't talk about it now. <laughs> There's a little write-up in your bulletin. If you've got it, you can read about that. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and get right in uh, to the meat of this, but let's first just pray and ask God to be a part of, uh, of our time tonight. Father God, we thank you so much. We thank you that uh, you've invited us to participate with you in your world and your creation and in your plan for redemption, uh, and we're just one small piece of that happening in Seattle in the Wallingford neighborhood and uh, we're just so blessed to get to participate with you. So thank you for inviting us into that. Lord, I thank you for all of those uh, in the room tonight. Um, they represent family, friends, uh, folks that I don't even know, but people that are connected somehow to this place. And so we thank you that, 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 that they're here tonight. We thank you that you've brought them here. And we pray, Lord, that, that you would make yourself known to them tonight, that your spirit would be in this room and that uh, we would feel your presence. Um, we pray that in our teaching, Lord, that anything that is not from you would pass away. Those things that are from you would stick. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so, uh, so I wanted to do kind of a special little launch series because um, we're launching a church, and so for the next three weeks, we're going to be kind of uh, using the same big idea. Uh, There'll be a different aspect to it, but it's, it's basically this one big idea, and it's this. 
What if it's true? It cha- if it's true, it changes everything. That's kind of the big idea. What if it's true? If it is, it changes everything. And the reason that I wanted to talk about uh, this is because it's so important to what we're about as a community. Um, what if it's true? Uh, I know that we can so often get stuck behind the question, is it true? Is it true? And if you're not yet a Christian, you can get stuck behind that question because uh, until you answer that, you can't even think about what the implications of if it is true are. And so we're so glad if you're not yet a Christian that you're here with us tonight and we just ask you, press pause for a second on is it true? Yeah, I'm saying that's fine to do and ask the question, what if it's true? Because that's what we're going to look about. And, And I think that it changes everything. Now, if you're already a Christian tonight, I want you to ask the exact same question, what if it's true? Because I think even if you're a Christian, you can get stuck behind, is it true? And if you get stuck behind it, you can always just say, yes, I believe, but you don't ask yourself, well, what does it change? And the answer is it changes everything. And so what we're about as a community is, I just want to be very upfront with you on this, is that if you spend time with us in our community, you will hopefully change. In, in fact, when you read the Bible, when you, when, you, when you read about this God who the Bible talks about, and when you study who Jesus is, no one can meet Jesus and not be changed. And so we just want to be upfront and honest and say, hanging out with us, being a part of this community, will change you. It will change the way you think. It will change the way you see the world. It will change everything about you. And so this kind of mini-series that we're doing uh, is a little different than the, the way I normally like to preach. I normally like to kind of preach through a book of the Bible, but we're doing this mini-series. We'll do this every once in a while. What if it's true? It changes everything. Even, and then we'll, we'll talk about three different things. Even these three things. And tonight, the thing that we're going to talk about is what if it's true? It changes everything. Even suffering. Even suffering. And you say, Dave, uh, that's probably not the best way to launch a brand new church is to talk about suffering. (laughs) Well, let me tell you a couple of reasons why suffering is the thing that I want to talk about tonight. Three words sum it up fairly well. Run. The ball. (laughs) Unless you're a transplant from Boston, (laughs) you have suffered over the last six days. Some of you might still be suffering. I... I suffered, and then I, I had to turn it off <laughs> because I had to study about suffering. But run the ball would be... So, that's a real thing, okay? <laughs> but, it, but in all seriousness, suffering is something that we all experience. It is very sad to say, but I think suffering is maybe the most common human experience, even more common than love. Now, I wish it wasn't that way, but I think that it is. Suffering is something that touches us all. We've all experienced it. Every culture, every society throughout all of history has experienced suffering, and they have to wrestle with this thing 
called suffering, pain, death. And I think it's so important that we don't just ignore this part of the world that we live in. I think this can be a problem sometime in churches that we just focus on the good and we say put on a smile and come into this place and just pretend it's all okay. Well, I don't want to be about that as a community because it's not true, because we suffer. C.S. Lewis said, said it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I believe that it's true. I believe that it's true for a lot of reasons. One of which is because suffering is the megaphone that changed my life. Some of you know my story, but it was almost eight years ago my sister Kim was killed in a bicycling accident. My older sister, the most amazing, wonderful person that I, uh, that I knew. And, and suffering touched me very deeply to my core, and it changed everything about me. And I had already been a Christian for most of my life, but when I experienced suffering, I started asking some of the questions we're going to ask tonight. It changed me profoundly in a way I'll never be the same because I wrestled with this question. So I want to wrestle with this question tonight. I don't want to be the kind of place that distracts from the big question of suffering. I don't want to be the place that diverts our attention or twists us away from from these kinds of questions that beg us to come and answer them truthfully, honestly. I don't want to, I, I want to look for the truth behind the pain because there is a truth and tonight hopefully we'll find it. So this is the kind of community we want to be. So I picked, let's talk about suffering. First night, hey, we're going to get real. We're going to talk about suffering. This is the kind of community we are. We don't shy away from considering anything especially the things that matter the most. And I think suffering matters a lot because I think we've all experienced it and probably a lot of us are experiencing it right now. So I'm going to do, do a couple things. One, I'm going to talk about there's an intellectual problem of evil and suffering and there's, a, there's an existential problem. The intellectual is, does it make sense to me? Why, why would God allow this to be? We're going to address that. But then we're going to move into the existential, which is the experiential part of suffering. It's like, yeah, maybe I understand, but how does it change the way I live and I act and I move in the world? So we're going to hopefully look at both uh, because uh, God and the Bible and uh, church should deal with both. God doesn't say, come into these doors and shut off your brain. And he doesn't say, come into these doors and shut off your emotion. And he doesn't say, come into these doors and shut off your life experience in the way you... He says, bring it all in because I'm big enough to address all of it. So we're looking at all of it tonight. And I want to start right here. And let me just give you a little disclaimer. There will probably be questions that you still have at the end of it that I don't address because you cannot solve a problem this big in, in 40 minutes. You can't solve a problem this big in a week, you can't solve it in a month, you can't solve it in a year, and that's exactly why we're starting a church, because a church is a, is a community that looks at these kind of things over and over and over again, and we do it together, we do it in community, we don't shy away, it happens again and again, and so um, my hope, my, if you don't have a community like this, make this your community, 
if, you, if, if it's not this, I, I don't find a community that's doing this kind of thing because you were built to, to, to think through some of these questions. In fact, all of these questions in communities like this. So um, just know that I'm not, you might still have questions. That doesn't mean uh, that it's not important what we're doing here just because we don't get every question answered, okay? So here we go. What is the problem of evil and suffering? This is a problem that, the, that philosophers have been wrestling about for a long time. Uh, it's actually uh, what many opponents to Christianity will call the silver bullet or the trump card. They'll say, because you can't answer this problem, it must not be true. I'm going to hopefully give you uh, just the beginnings of understanding how it could be true, and hopefully you'll see it in a way that you never thought about it before, and it'll change everything about the way you look at suffering. So here's how the philosophical argument goes. It goes like this. If God is all-powerful and God is all-good, how can suffering and evil exist in the world? Does that make sense? If God is all-powerful and he's all-good at the same time, how can he allow suffering and evil to exist? Shouldn't he be able to eradicate it? So that's the challenge. It's a real challenge. We've got to deal with it. We can't just pretend that it's not there. We've got, we got to wrestle with it. So what is it? Is God not all-powerful? Is he not all-good? Does he not actually exist? Or does suffering and evil not exist? These are all ways uh, to deal with it. So our project tonight... Uh, is to try to, to show what the Christian perspective is. But what I also want to say is that this is a problem that every human being has to deal with. Every worldview has to deal with this. Every philosophy has to deal with this. Every religion has to deal with this. Just because you state the question doesn't mean that you don't have to deal with it. And I think lots of times um, uh, people place this, this problem on Christianity, for instance, and then they say, I don't have to deal with it. You still have to deal with it. It's still there. Suffering is still there. So I'm going to show, hopefully, that it, which is the gospel, is true. Uh, Sorry, if it's true, how it deals with this issue. If the gospel is true, how will it deal with this issue? So, first, um, one approach to the problem. I'm going to state a few approaches to the problem that aren't the Christian approach. And then I'm, I'm going to go into the Christian approach, how the gospel deals with it. The first approach, and some will say this, many will say this, they'll say, uh, well, the way to deal with the problem of suffering and evil in the world is just by admitting that God himself does not exist. That is one way to deal with the problem. But here's the question. If you remove God from the equation, does evil and suffering still exist? And if you say yes, which most atheists would say, you have to deal with the issue of, well, then where did evil come from? It doesn't just go away. If you state that it exists, then you have to explain how it got there. And I think if evil exists, then what else has to exist? This idea of good. And what's more foundational in the equation of good and evil? Well, I think if it's for something to be evil then good is actually more foundational. You have to explain, well, then where does good come from? This is a problem that you have if you take this route to deal with the problem of suffering. So just by removing God from the equation, uh, you, you haven't fixed the issue. You've just changed the issue. And you're actually, I think, forced to live into a contradiction. 
You have to say that evil exists, but you have no way of explaining why that is. Uh, there's a famous uh, philosopher, a German named Friedrich Nietzsche, and he said this about suffering. He, he, you might know him. He's the guy who famously said, God is dead. He said it again and again, and many people listened to him. He said this, To live is to suffer. To survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. This is a classic response if you take this kind of approach to the problem. To live is to suffer. To survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. Is that true? Is that true? Is to live to suffer. I don't think so. And I don't think if you take this position that you can actually find any meaning in the suffering. It is meaningless. Frederick Nietzsche's life kind of ended abruptly. He was 44 years old when he suffered uh, a mental collapse. Complete loss of his mental faculties. He lived the next 10 years of his life in complete dependence, in house care, and he eventually died of bed rest. He experienced great suffering. And the question would be, did he find meaning to his suffering? Another approach to the problem of evil and suffering is to say that evil does not actually exist. That evil does not actually exist. This is a stance that's representative of, of, of certain sects of Buddhism and Hinduism, the New Age movement, and others. For instance, Buddhism will say something like this. Well, right and wrong, they're actually a matter of perspective, not a matter of reality. And as you approach the divine mind, they call this nirvana, all distinctions are erased, so there is no right or wrong, good or bad. There's no evil. It's just a problem of perception, and you just need to convince yourself that it doesn't exist. The problem with this is the existential problem. It does exist. We feel it. We experience it. It's very much real. It's very much real. And so, I don't think this solves the problem. I mean, if you're going to do a launch service in Seattle, you've got to bring up Kurt Cobain. That's just what you've got to do. Kurt Cobain, lead singer of Nirvana. Uh, if you don't know who that is, that means you're very young. Or very old. <laughs> and um, uh, popular singer here in Seattle. Uh, he explained his music this way. He, he said this. He said, punk is musical freedom. It's saying, doing, and playing what you want. In Webster's terms, nirvana means freedom from pain and suffering and the external world. And that's pretty close to my definition of punk rock. Dang, that sounds cool. The problem is it's not true, I don't think, because no matter how much you talk yourself out of pain and suffering and you say, well, it doesn't exist, I just need to get to nirvana, which is an escape from uh, all reality. He calls it, I just need to escape the external world in order to get away from pain and suffering. The problem is you can't do that. In fact, I don't want to leave the external world. I believe I was made for the external world. I don't want to escape so the problem becomes existential is I might want it to be true, but it's just not true. I can't escape. Now, we all know how Kurt Cobain's life ended. 
unless you're very young or you're very old. Uh, he committed suicide. He took his own life. And I would guess probably because the despair, the existential reality of life and its suffering was too much for him. So I think that option is bunk. There's other ways to get around the problem. You can say God's not all-powerful or he's not all-knowing or he's not all-good. But I think those fall short as well. And so now I want to look at the gospel answer to the problem of suffering, the way that Christianity has tried to deal and wrestle with the issue. And there's multiple ways. I'm going to choose one that I think is the most intellectually satisfying for me and existentially satisfying. I'm going to talk about it. And I'm going to talk about how if it's true, it changes everything. So in order to understand it, I've got to give you a brief kind of explanation of the overall Christian uh, view of the way the world is. So uh, we'll say this, uh, and, and the Bible, of course, affirms all of this. We say God is, is an all-powerful, all-good God, and he created a good creation. And then he created humanity within the creation, and he created them very good. That's what it says, very good. And so we have this idea of creation is that there was a time when it was perfect. It was very good. There was no suffering, no pain, no evil in the world. Why is this so important? This is so important because that thing that we long for, that thing that we hope for, actually existed at some point. We're not just hoping for something that doesn't exist. This is where if you don't believe in a good creation, which many religions and worldviews don't, they say it's just always been this way, then why do we long for that thing which was never lost? Paradise has been lost. We are east of Eden. That's why we long for it. There was a time when God's creation was perfect. It was unmarred by suffering, pain, and evil. That is so important to remember. That is so important to understanding the Christian view of the problem of evil. And so it also gives us an understanding of what evil is. What is evil? Is it a thing in itself? No, because God didn't create it. What evil is, is actually, as Augustine would say, it's a a privation of good. What does he mean by that? A privation of good. It means that evil is simply a recognition of good gone bad. C.S. Lewis said it this way, goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. Badness is only spoiled goodness. So this is a Christian understanding of evil. So it's not that evil is is an entity in and of itself. So God didn't create it. It's just evil. It's just good gone bad. That's what evil is. And so it's a privation of good. And so uh, we have this good creation. It's very good, but it has the possibility of going bad. God's created it with an intrinsic possibility of going bad. And that's exactly what happens. Christianity, we call this the fall. We call this the fall. This is where the idea comes from. The story of Adam and Eve and Eve in the garden. And they chose their own way instead of God's way and they fall. So think about it like this. God's created this perfect creation. He's like a magnet here. You've got three rings. Three metal rings like this. And they're all connected, right? Because we've got a magnet and the and magnetism is flowing through them all. And here's how the fall works. When humanity decides, because God has created them with the potential to choose their own way, when we do that, we sever the connection with the magnet. Now what happens? What happens to all three of the spheres? They all fall apart. 
And this is actually the Christian understanding of what happens at the fall. It's humanity, given the free will, the choice to make a decision, it's humanity that chooses to sever that connection, but it affects everything else. This is why it's not only decisions made by sinful human beings that cause suffering and pain, but it's that everything else is jacked up. Creation wars against us. Disease wars against us. Natural disasters. It all is falling apart because the connection has been broken here, so everything falls apart. Does that make sense? That's, that's the understanding of, of, of the fall from a Christian perspective. But, fortunately, the Christian understanding of the way things are is that even though it's been lost, it is not beyond redemption. Because God is all-powerful and He is all-good and He wants redemption. So unlike uh, naturalism or many of the Eastern religions, uh, because we are not created fallen, because we're not created cruel or created broken, but we're created good in the image of God, there is a chance for redemption. We can be put back together again. But then the question becomes, what can make us whole again? Now, let me go back to the problem before I answer what can make us whole again. Why is God allowing this suffering to linger? That's a serious problem. Even if you understand the way the fall works in creation and how we got to the place we're at and why there's suffering in the world, we've got to understand, well, why does God allow it to linger? So some say, well, that's okay that you explain uh, the creation and the fall that way, but why would God, if he's all-powerful and all-good, allow the fall to happen, one, and then allow it to persist for so long? Another way to say it, if God, uh, if God is all-powerful and he can prevent evil and he can do absolutely anything, wouldn't God's goodness prevent the next evil or the evil after that? Why does it persist? So this is a valid argument. Uh, and the answer to this is so important. This is actually, this is, this is the turning point. Why does he do it? Why does he allow it to persist? Why does he allow the next evil to happen? There must be, listen closely, there must be a better reason for God's allowance of evil and therefore suffering that actually is more reflective of his goodness, of the fullness of his goodness, than the alternative which would be to stop all evil. Let me say it again. Could it be that God would allow certain evils into the world because there are certain goods, good things that happen by allowing those evils to exist? If that's true, then there is a morally justifiable way for a reason for God to not stop all evil. Now, this is why the gospel is so important. Important. What if it is true? What if the gospel is true? This is why it's so important. If the gospel is true, then it uniquely answers both the problem of evil and the question, how do you make it whole again? And it's a magnificent, beautiful stroke and, and, and what I would say of divine inspiration. What do I mean? What can make us whole again? What solves the problem of evil? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What? 
Dave, don't go there. I went there. I'm going there. Here's the deal. If the gospel is true, now don't, you don't have to say it is or it isn't. Listen, listen, follow me through. If the gospel is true, the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, then there is at least one manifestation of evil and suffering that existed in space-time history, and it's actually the greatest manifestation of evil and suffering that's ever existed. If it's true, it is the greatest manifestation, then there's at least one that is both completely in line with God's goodness and his love and is a justifiable allowance of pain and suffering. If the gospel is true, then there's at least one instance where God's allowance of pain and suffering is actually so that the greatest good ever possible could happen at the same time. If it's true. Now, the interesting thing is that God actually predicted that this is the way that it would be. In Isaiah 53, he predicts that the Savior that would come to fix the problem was not some conquering king, but would actually be a suffering servant. And that's exactly what we find in Jesus. So, if you have a Bible, it usually don't take, doesn't take me this long to get to the Bible, but we're there now. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, there's some Bibles at the edges of your rows. Uh, the ones that are at the edges of your rows, feel free to take those if you do not own a Bible. That's a gift from me to you. Take one of those. If they're in the pew behind, don't take those. Those aren't ours. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, this is near kind of the back of your Bible. There's absolutely no shame. There's a table of contents in the front. I went to four years of graduate school. I still use the table of contents all the time, okay? So I look in here, third page in. I find it, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And he's trying to explain what the church is to be, uh, what we are to be as followers of Christ. And we get to chapter 15, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. He describes for us the gospel, so when we're asking what if it's true, this is the gospel. Chapter 15, starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's Paul talking of himself. That is the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and then he rose again on the third day. And if that is true, it changes everything. Why is that? Why is that? Well, what I want to do is actually look at how Paul talks about that. How does Paul talk about that? It's the last part of the gospel that's so important. If it's true that he died, he suffered, he was buried, and then he rose again, that changes everything. 
It vindicates his work on the cross. It vindicates his work as the suffering servant. And it necessarily changes the entire way we view evil and suffering. Why? Because it's not the end of him. Jesus didn't stay suffering. He didn't stay dead. The end of suffering is always death. It's the natural conclusion of suffering. We go through this life with little little deaths, little sufferings, and eventually it catches up. Every single one of us, it will catch up to us. But for Jesus, it could not hold him down. So look at what Paul does. He does a very similar argument to what we're doing tonight. He says, now, it's important, is it true? That's important. We need to ask that question. We need to consider that question, is it true? But look what he does. He does what what we're doing tonight. He says, what if it's true? Or what if it's not true? So go down to verse 12 with me. Paul says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? What is Paul saying here? He's saying, um, listen, if it's true that one person rose from the dead, that's Jesus Christ, then isn't it true that resurrection from the dead is possible? Possible for everyone? He's not saying Uh, that everyone will. He's just saying it's possible because it's happened, right? Do you remember when you were little and and, and you you went out for Halloween and you got all sorts of candy, right? And you just stored that stuff up, man, and you created a system, a rationing system in which you wanted that candy to last as long as possible because you knew once that candy was gone, there was no more where that candy came from. You remember that? I mean, some of you are still doing it. But do you remember that one time it probably happened. I mean, it might have been when the first time your mom took you to Costco and then you walked by that aisle and you just saw like boxes and boxes of like, like full-size candy bars and you're like, Mom, what's that? And it's like not even that expensive, you know, and you realize we spent a lot more money on a lot of other things and I could just have all the candy that I wanted. That's the moment of realization that Paul's trying to get. He's saying, listen, guys, If it happened once, (laughs) it can happen again. And they're like, what? There's candy out there? Yeah. He's saying it's happened, so it can happen again. He's saying, you thought that there was not resurrection from the dead, but Christ proves that there was. It changes everything. So he goes on. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. That's a fair point, right? He just flips the argument. If there is no resurrection at all, then Christ could not have been raised, right? And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, verse 14, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Here's what he's saying. Listen, if it didn't actually happen, then what are we doing here? And and Paul was a guy who suffered greatly for the gospel. He was chased down, he was imprisoned, he was beaten, he was tortured, And eventually he gave his life for the gospel. He's saying, if it's not true that Christ rose from the dead, is that if then, then what are we doing? Our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain. He goes on, verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised. So he's just continuing his argument. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And look at this. You are still in your sins. 
if Christ has not been raised, if there is not resurrection from the dead, then you are still in your sins. What is he, what's he saying? He's saying you're still in your suffering. Death will still eventually get you and there's no way out of it. There is no meaning to your suffering. It defines you. You're still in your sins. If it's true that Christ is not raised. He goes on, verse 18. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have perished. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. We are all, if, it's true, if it's not true that he rose from the dead, then Christians are the most to be pitied. Why is that? Why is that true? Here's why it's true. Because we are the ones who are worshiping and following not a leader who uh, had military conquests and said, if you follow me, you get all sorts of good stuff. We follow a guy who said, if you come and follow me, you have suffering and death and you give your life up. That's who we're following. So if he did not rise from the dead, then what are we following? We're following the worst leader in history. We don't want to follow a guy like that. That's what he's saying. We're the most to be pitied if Christ did not rise from the dead. But then look what he does. Verse 20. But Paul doesn't actually believe that Christ didn't rise. He's talked to over 500 people who saw him risen. So he says this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Here's what first fruits mean. Agricultural setting, you go out and you see the first apple that, that, that sprouts off of your tree. You grab the apple, you say, man, that's a good apple. It's the first fruit. Well, what do you know is happening? There's going to be a lot more fruit where that came from. It's the first fruit. So Christ's resurrection from the dead becomes the first fruit. It shows that there's true life where he came from, and there's more coming. So Paul says, but if it's true that he has been raised, and I believe in fact that he has, then he is the first fruits of all that have died. Look what he says, verse 20. For as by a man came death, that's the fall, Adam. By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Look at this. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. If that's true, if Christ is coming again and we too will experience a resurrection like he has, if that's true, it changes everything. It changes everything about our experience of suffering. It changes everything about our experience of this life if it's true. If it's true, it changes everything, even suffering. Now again, I'm not asking you to say, is it true? I'm asking you to say, if it's true. And if it's true, it changes everything. Christ is the only one who has beaten this thing called death. He's the only one that has gone through suffering. He doesn't escape or go around it. He doesn't say, just avoid it, distract yourself, build up a barrier against all suffering the word. He says, I'm going to go right through it. I'm going to go right into suffering, and I'm going to change it. And he does that, and he shows and he proves it by his resurrection. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. 
And he says, and if you go on, and I just encourage you, keep reading through uh, chapter 15. He explains the resurrection bodies, the new bodies that will be given that will be like Christ. And he explains it to them. And he says, that's what we have in store for us. That's what we have in store. Uh, My wife is pregnant, and we're expecting our first child in May. Yeah, come on. And... um, and, you know, we talk about this all the time because I've had kidney stones in the past and I've heard it argued what's more painful, kidney stones or labor, okay? Here is the important distinction that you need to know. Yeah, this is not, uh, this is important. This is why kidney stones are so much worse than labor. Just bear with me. Suffering is real and it happens in both. And I don't know what's worse, worse in the moment. I will never know what's worse in the moment. All I know is kidney stone's really bad. At the end of, uh, of labor, what comes out is a beautiful new creation. It's going to be a little baby boy, a Norwegian. He's going to be strong. He's going to be powerful. This is a beautiful thing. You know what comes out? You want to know what came out out of my suffering? A little like nerd-sized stone that's got all these rigid edges. And, I, you know, I kept it in a bag for a few weeks. I said, that, I went through a lot to get that. And then I realized, this is ridiculous. And I threw it away. <laughs> the, reason why, the, the reason why the gospel changes everything is be, it's not because suffering goes away. Listen, if you've heard the false gospel that if you're a Christian and you do things right and you follow God and you obey, that you won't experience suffering, repent. That is a false gospel. That is not true. That is not the way that God works. You will suffer. You will experience severe, severe pain in this life. That's a guarantee. But what is also a guarantee is that at the other side of that is not more suffering, but it's new life and it's found in Jesus Christ because he rose from the dead. That's why it changes everything. You will experience suffering but you will also experience new life if you place your trust in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's why it changes everything. You will still suffer, but at the end of it, you will have this amazing new life. And that's what he promises. Read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. So, if you are here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, let me just tell you this. We're so glad that you're here. One of, the, one of the big reasons why we exist as a community is to be a place where you can come and consider these big questions of life, these big questions of suffering. Uh, why am I here? What is this all about? Who is God? We're so glad that you're here. What I hope tonight is that you're able to look past the question, is it true, and say, if it's true, it changes everything. And we would love to become a community for you to kind of continue to process that. What does that mean? What does that look like? What do I do? This is the place for you. If you're already a Christian, I think this message is important to you. Perhaps you're here tonight and you need to rethink the way you understand the effects of the gospel in your own life. Maybe, maybe you were like I used to be and I used to think if I just do everything right, then I can avoid all this pain and suffering. That's not the way it works. Just know that. It's not the way it works. Perhaps you need a strong reminder that the only reason that you're saved is because God came into our problem, he took on our suffering, and he died a death that we should have died so that we could walk into a life that we should never have had. You need to remember that, and you need to thank God. You should weep when you think about the suffering of Christ on your behalf. 
if you're a Christian, maybe tonight's made you realize that God really hates suffering. He does not like it. He hates it so much that he went to the extreme measure to eradicate it from his good creation. That's what he's doing. It's not there yet, but he is eventually going to eradicate all pain and suffering. That's his plan. He hates it that much, and so he sent his son. And it, it must have been the only way that it could happen because God would have picked another way if there could have been another way. But God's justice, he can't deny his justice in order to live into his goodness. He must keep all that he is. He's a perfect God. And so this must have been the only way. And so if he hates suffering that much, and if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, how much do you hate the pain and suffering that you see? That you see in our city? That you see with your friends? That you see in your neighborhood? That you see in this world? How much do you hate it? Do you hate it the way Christ hates it? Would you do anything to see it go away? If you're a believer tonight and, and, and you don't see suffering that way, maybe, maybe you should rethink what it means to follow Jesus because he did everything in his power to alleviate it. Now this is for everybody tonight. This is for everybody tonight. If you've ever suffered, if you're suffering right now, hear these three things. If it's true, your suffering is real. It's real. Your suffering is real. You don't have to hide it. You don't have to pretend it's not there. You don't have to push it under the rug. Your suffering is real. Your suffering is real. And it's actually not a malfunction of your psyche. What it is, it's, it's a compass pointing you back to God's good creation. It's pointing you back to the cross and the gospel because that is the only way to get back. The place you want to go has to go through the, through the cross of Christ through the cross and through his resurrection. So it's not a malfunction, it's real, and it's pointing you back, it's guiding you back. That's for all of us. It's guiding us back. It's guiding us back. If it's true, if it's true, if the gospel is true, you're not under the rule of an unsympathetic God who does not care about what you're going through. He doesn't, he, it's not that he doesn't he not only sympathizes, he empathizes because he's come and he's taken it on himself. That's what the gospel teaches us. He cares more about it than we, than, than we could ever know. Peter Kraft, a theologian, said this, when we feel the hammers of life beating on our heads and on our hearts, we can know, we must know that he, that's God, is here with us taking our blows. Every tear we shed becomes his tear. We may not yet wipe them away, but he makes them his. We don't always know why God doesn't wipe them away in the timing that we'd like, but we know that he takes them on as his own. That's the cross. He's taken our tears as his. And finally, three, if, if, if it's true, your suffering does not have to be your legacy. Your suffering does not have to be your legacy. The suffering of Christ is not his legacy. That's why Easter always comes after Good Friday. The cross is always followed by the resurrection because Jesus' legacy is not the cross, it's the resurrection. And you too, your legacy does not have to be suffering. Your legacy can be new life with Jesus. This is such good news. This is what the gospel teaches us. Everybody else, their legacy is their death. On their tombstone, it says, born here, lived however good of a life, died here. 
Jesus has no tombstone because his legacy is not his death. He's the risen Lord, and he reigns, and he gives life to anyone that comes and begs him, give me your life, Lord. So if it's true, it changes everything. Most importantly, it will change you. I know this because it changed me. Because it continues to change me, the more and more I absorb the truth of the gospel, the more and more it changes me. It changes my view of suffering, it changes my view of my role in this world, it changes everything about me. And if it's true, it will change you. So, if there's even the smallest chance that it's true, if there's even just, in your mind, if there's even just the smallest chance that it's true, why wouldn't you consider this more clearly? Why wouldn't you consider this more seriously, more honestly, more fully, more vigorously? If it might be true, it changes everything. So as you go from this place, my hope is that you continue to consider the truth of the gospel. And here's the good news, guys. We do this every single week in this community. This is what we're about. And I hope you don't do it on your own because you were never meant to consider in isolation. You were meant to consider in community. That's how God's created us. Part of his good creation is that he gives us each other so that we might know him better through each other. And so we do it in community. That's my hope for you tonight, that you might uh, consider in community. And and if, if this is a place you can do it, we would love to have you join us. Pray with me. Father God, Father God, we are so uh, amazed by the gospel. Lord, if it's true, it is the most beautiful, the most amazing, the most life-changing truth that exists in the world. If it is true, Lord, that, that you died for our sin, that you came into this world, that you took on our suffering, that you lived Uh, the life of the suffering servant, that you died on the cross, that you were buried, that three days later you rose from the grave, conquering sin, death, and all suffering. If that's true, it changes everything. The world is not as it was. The world has changed. You have changed the definition of death itself because it is no longer our legacy. It is no longer what we must be known for. It just becomes a part of our experience as, as we learn to live into a new, fuller life uh, that's lived through the resurrection. This is the best news. I, I feel so privileged that I get to talk about it. Lord, I pray for my friends here tonight that they would consider the truth of this, that they would consider the implications of what if it's true, and Lord, that they would press into you and that they would ask you even tonight, God, if it's true, help me to see. If it's true, help me to see. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus because he is the one who came and died for us. In his name we pray, amen.